Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sources Vision. In today's episode, we discuss the who's who of Black and Pan African revolutionaries. This is a 90 minute discussion, and we invite you to call in at 347 857 1319 All right, we're back. Brother Carl. Yes, yes, yes. We're back. A lot happened yeah. uh uh since last week, particularly with Donald Trump. Uh he's keeping a lot of folks uh uh yeah, we definitely busy. About this. We can do a show about this fascist every freaking day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, 14, you know. 15, what is this, 15, 16 days in, this boy is, man, it's like every single man. day is something. They every can't keep their fucking lives. They can't keep their lives straight, Carl. They can't keep their lives straight. And then, um, I don't even want to get off on it, but I'm, I was just looking at Twitter before we got on here. Mm-hmm. And they have they have this list of um of what they call terrorist attacks or terrorist attacks that the, that they say the media hasn't covered. <laughs> so Keith Olbermann gets on his tweet and he says, first off, they can't spell San Bernardino. They misspelled <laughs> the attacker twenty two times. Uh, you're talking about you're talking about Then they made one inept. up. Then they made one up. So. Yeah, yeah. And like just totally inept. And then you know, we're, our topic today is about these black, you know, like black revolutionaries and what have you, Black History Month. And yeah, everybody's heard about, you know, what he did on that one. You know, why right, people just step back and let it happen. You know, we don't mm-hmm. have we don't have no fucking well, we don't have no respect for ourselves. Just you know, you know, like, you know, like motherfucker, I'm gonna get up and leave out of here. You don't even, you're not even taking us seriously. You know, maybe you couldn't get up then, but after the after he gave the speech. You just could have just got up in protest. Look, you don't even expect us to even know who our people are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's so right. About, That's mean, right. It was, just, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And mm-hmm. and to me, when Obama, if Obama had done something like that, they would have been all over it. it all been like, over it. I mean, it would, it would have been, still been talked about. It would have been like, like, can we talk about the man's IQ? Right. You know what I mean? They would have, not only talk about Obama's IQ, it would have been a whole thing about black people's IQ and do they get enough education and blah, 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 and what schools they go to. But it just would have been a whole kind of breakdown. Everybody had to be held responsible for, you know, Obama not knowing who somebody was. Like, you know, if he didn't right. know who President Lincoln was or some shit like that, right? It just would have been a whole kind of. Like unpacking. That, that's how vicious the Republicans are. But what do the Democrats do? Democrats do well. You know, they just make fun. They just kind of like be sarcastic about it. Oh well, you know, yeah, look how dumb he is. No, man, you don't. got the wrong person up there. You know, what I mean, you should be calling for this man's impeachment, right? You should be calling. That's him. right. And he, that's and, right. And, and the interesting thing—it's—it's it's interesting. Is it? Just, since we're on, I know because we could spend hours just on the Trump. But Ow. let me since it's Ow. Black History Month, and the one thing that Donald Trump and I'm I'm going to read a piece from Frederick Douglass, but he messed him up in a sense that mm-hmm. he says, and it's it clear he didn't know who he was because he says he's still alive, he's doing great things, you know, he's a person who's not really known. <laughs> 
But the brother was a revolutionary. And, and let me tell you the reason why, because even among liberals, they haven't really understood <coughs> Frederick Douglass. So I'm going to read a piece. I'm going to read a piece of Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass. This, and, and after hearing this piece, everybody's going to say this brother was a revolutionary. He says, let me yeah. give you a word of the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concession yet made to her August claim has been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, absorbing, and for the time being putting all other turbulence to silence. It must do this or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. That's the one everybody knows. Those mm-hmm. who profess to favor freedom yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want ocean without the awful roar of its many water. This struggle, now this is the part nobody pays attention to. See, they like the first part, mm-hmm. you know, but I'll, if there's no struggle, they'll fight. Now, this part, the second paragraph, no one likes, which makes them a revolutionary. This struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one. It may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power can see nothing without a demand. It never did, Thank and you. it never will. Find out just what people will quietly submit to, and you will have found the exact measure of injustice and wrong, which will be imposed upon them. And these, and these will continue until they, they are resisted with either words or blow or both. The limit of a tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those who they oppress. And in light of these ideas, Negroes were hunted at the north and held and flogged at the south. So long as they submit to those devilish outrages and make no resistance, either moral or physical, men may not get all they pay for in the world, but they must certainly pay for all they get. And if we ever get free from oppression and wrong heap upon us, we must pay for their removal. We must do this by labor, by suffering, by sacrifice, and if need to be, by our lives and lives of others. <laughs> that's a revolution. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's revolutionary. <laughs> and, and, and that's somebody who taught himself to read. Taught himself to read. That's right. right? That's right. And I think he, produ- I think he produced uh, three memoirs, I think, three books of memoirs, and then he was a great orator. Oh, right? yeah. Uh, beautiful orator. And, and, and it used to get me when I was when I used to teach people. You know, back in the day, back you know, as far as it's still even today, they want to teach Huckleberry Finn. Here's a mm-hmm. white man, Mark Twain, talking mm-hmm. about slavery, rather than rather than Frederick <laughs> Douglass, who lived around about the same time and probably had the books around about the same time, rather than teaching uh, a, a book by somebody who was enslaved and has fought liberation. You see what I'm saying? So look, here you got in, in Huckleberry Finn, nigga Jim. He loved nigga Jim. He loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. to have a black man talk about his own liberation, oh, that's scary. That's totally and, scary. And, and what made uh, Frederick Douglass? Um, one, he knew John Brown, and mm-hmm. you know he didn't he didn't go along with him in terms of actually committed, but he fully understood why he did it. Even though America makes right. him as a crazy maniac and all this other stuff, he was truly right, right, a revolutionary because he he realized that you cannot compromise with slavery. You cannot, you know, morally talk him out of. That's the part of the reason why Uncle Tom Cabin, the book was written, was to persuade white liberals 
and good white people in the South to give up slavery, and therefore we can go into the promised land. You know, John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and a number of other abolitionists, radical abolitionists, clearly understood that it comes to a point where you just can't, you know, have a conversation with slavery. You can't have a mm -hmm. let's get along and figure out a compromise. They knew that it would have to come by way of force. That's why he, mm -hmm. when um, Frederick Douglass constantly went to Abraham Lincoln and said, this is not a struggle around you know, united the nation. This is the struggle about what system is going to survive, is going to remain in existence. We want to have a mm -hmm. much more progressive, uh, 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 you know, at that time progressive capitalist system, or we're going to have a, a, a slave system. One cannot exist. And slavery is an immoral system that needs to be destroyed by violence, by war. Right. And, and, it, and, it, and, that is what changed. And, it, and, it, and then he takes it up one more notch. It's one thing to tell, you know, uh, more, you know, liberal whites that, you know, we need to take this up and, and, and strike fighting the struggle. But it's a whole other thing when, when Frederick Douglass says, well, in addition to that, the best people who could defeat this is, is, is ex-slaves. And you got to give them guns. Now, that was just right. unheard of. You don't give your mm -hmm. your oppressed person guns to to come after the people who, you know who, who, who seeking you know who was who kept you oppressed for so many years. That was a a, 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 a mind blowing. But it they were forced to it because they were losing so bad uh, during the war that that Frederick Douglass said you know the best people going to liberate it ain't going to be to your liberal whites. It's not going to be the whites in the north going to liberate us. It is only going to be mm -hmm. us who are going to liberate us, and 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 so when right. they, you know, uh, armed the you know the the Massachusetts uh, regiment and went and demonstrated they could do it, uh, others ex slaves just started getting weapons in, in the South throughout Florida, through Georgia, and different places. Just started arming themselves to, uh, and, and joined the Union Army and led in many ways the Civil War. But that's not how the story is told. The story is told is by these good white people who's going to save us all. And this is, this is distinguished the, uh, those who are revolutionary and those are good moral people who want to tell, you know, uh, how we can all get along, kumbaya kind of uh, story that has no real struggle, no real friction, no real agitation, no real lightning or thundering that takes place in the midst of a struggle. So one of one of the reasons why um well first of all let me let me before I get into what I'm gonna say, um it's one of the that I call it let our viewers uh, I'm sorry, our listeners know that uh we have scheduled to have uh an author named Jody Dean, who is the author of Proud right. Politics and she'll be on I think on our twenty the uh February twenty seventh. The twenty seventh show, right? Yeah, February twenty seventh show. Reading that book. Yeah, if you're interested in reading the book, it's called Crowds in Politics. It's put out by Verso Press. Now, I, I would say I finished reading the book this weekend, and, uh, you know, it's, it is a theoretical book. She's more of a theoretical writer, but she does raise some good questions about the, the well, what are some, she lightens about, you know, the notion of protest, which she calls crowds, and then the notion of getting back to a left political party. And so that's kind of, and, and, and what I'm going to do, Carl, is I, I want us to kind of maybe, Next weekend, uh, next week's show, I want to talk about protests, uh, uh, um, uh, boycotts, and, and strikes. 
And I want okay. I want her to talk about it, and then we'll have her on the show to talk about it even more and get her take on it as well, because this is really a pertinent topic for what's happening this year, because this year is going to be uh, a series of resistance, but there's some serious problems about how we're using these protests and how we're using these, these strikes uh, in this time. So we need to have some more kind of talk about that, some reflection about uh-huh. that. So, again, if right. you're interested, uh, listeners, do that. So, you know, just letting people know that. Right, um, and, I, and it's very relevant today, as you describe, because we yeah. have the absence of a political party. We don't have a political yeah. party that's re- yeah, that we don't have the, a political party of the working class. We have bourgeois parties, yeah. but we don't have, and we have these, you know, smaller marginalized left parties, but we don't have a national mass uh, working class party. In the book, and I've only scanned it, so I'm, I'm actually beginning to read mm-hmm. it. Um, it talks about the the, the tension and struggle around crowds and parties. So uh, we strongly mm-hmm. recommend our listeners to uh, to really read the book. Yes, it's heavy. It's not. Uh, it's very theoretical, it's but it's, no, it's but it makes you think mm-hmm. about the critical questions about party. What does that mean in relationship to crowds or what we used to call masses, um, and how that relates to all the other struggles that you know. The, you know, people are engaged in whether it's in strikes or in boycotts or you know mass demonstration, and the limitations of mass demonstration strikes and, and those kinds of things, and the limitation of party and the tension between the two. So, the book the book deals with all that, um, and uh, we strongly suggest people, you know, our listeners really read it, um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit leading up to it. But I think it's it's going to be it's a relevant subject today because we're talking about resistance. And what does that mean? How do we do it right? How does it unfold? What are some of the uh, pitfalls and landmines that lie before us? Um, uh, Those kinds of issues that we need to have those rich discussions. This is actually a takeoff of our last um, show, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll get more into that. So let me go back, um, you know, and talk about this. One of the things, you know, one of the reasons why I chose this topic is because I know a lot of times we talk about Black History Month, and it's typically a lot of times around, you know, who invented something, you know, and the black inventions, which is good. That's, that's really great. Um, and, and uh, you know, maybe talk about some of the more uh, celebratory uh, people um, that uh, are in our history. But is, is, these, is this what we call revolutionaries and progressive um, leaders and, struggle and, and activists that uh, – don't always get the get the exposure that they deserve, unless you really do study history. Um, unless you really have, you know, focus on who our people are. For example, you know, my daughter, for example, who's at UCLA, she's, you know, is taking a lot of um, her part of her major is African American studies. But you know, as as she was growing up, she was she was well into this stuff. You know, she we we could have conversations about this. She could, you know, she would go online. She may not always read a book or everything, but she would go online and find out, find out about different parts of our history and, and our follow-up with how many discussions we have. Whereas my son is not like that. <laughs> you know, he's like the complete opposite of that. And so if you don't, if, if, so if you do not, um, a lot of times you won't get what we're talking about in the show today. You won't get that in high school. And depending on what schools you go to, you might not get this information. And so I, I did this part of this reason because hopefully, like, doing Black History Month, you know, some people might see the hashtag and might want to click over to it, particularly young people who don't have this information. 
But the most important thing that I tell young people about is when it comes to people of African descent, you know, the most, the most thing you really want to honor the most is the strength of our culture. It is the strength of our culture that has allowed us and that has made us survive for this long. It is the strength of our culture that speaks to our greatness. You can, we can, there's a lot of things that we can talk about that's wrong with the struggles that we, the challenges that we're facing, the oppression that we face. But just think about that. Through, through all the oppression that we've faced, and, and, and still are, right, think about how we've been able to, to begin to withstand that. It's because of our culture. And we need to understand what culture is and how it plays out. And, and you know, Kwame Nkrumah talked about that. Secretary Ray talked about that. Um, to a certain extent, I guess Du Bois talked about that as well. But it's like the strength of our culture is the one that we need to understand and we need to honor that and we need to praise it. It's not just about, you know, who, who the names are. Because, you know, we, we should know those things. But we should also know how we use history and culture to fight oppression, to fight for liberation. And so right. the there's, an old African, there's an African proverb, you know, you call on your ancestors. And um, yeah. uh, one of the things that for me when I – uh, went to uh, City College, Sacramento City College, took black history. And, I mean, it was, you know, there there was a lot of information that I didn't know about uh, black history, you know, great inventions, mm-hmm. uh, African kingdom. But I still felt there were a lot of things left out. And um, it wasn't later when I did my own independent history as being part of the movement, um, the new communist movement, that I – that I was introduced to a whole other set of experiences and struggle that um, people of African descent uh, went through um, their their intellectual knowledge, their organizing skills, their ability to make and, and shape struggles and withstand the difficulties uh, and still persevere and win. Um, and sometimes they lost, but it, you know, a number of cases they, you know, they were able to win a number of different struggles. But they stood up against oppression. They um, not only stood up but organized. They are only articulated a vision. They all they, and many in 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 America, particularly from the both in the Caribbeans and in the United States, is that we have a really rich history of many of. Uh, people of African descent that were socialists um, that are that go yeah, nameless that. throughout mm-hmm. th- throughout uh, throughout our experience. So part of, a lot of the people we're going to be identifying as revolutionaries are in fact um, come from a socialist tradition. They may not always articulate it that they're socialists, but they in many ways um, spoke from a socialist position, indicted the, this, the economic capitalist system, not just indicted the man or an individual person, um, and organize among people who are not always petty bourgeois or middle class. They organize the, among the, uh, the most oppressed and marginal. So a lot of the names you're going to hear today and stories you're going to hear today is a, a culmination of that history, that experience, that culture that still resonate today among the next generation of the millennials and, and, and generation O who are now taking up the mantle um, and, and, and speaking to that and organizing that, whether it's through Black Lives Matter movements or and other movements that are taking place today. 
Right, right. And, and uh, well, of course, say, well, one of the things that I, I, I've gotten my son, I'm gonna, my son has said he will, I, I, I want him to read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, not because I think that was the, the best book about Malcolm X necessarily, because it wasn't written by him per se. He was told to Alex Haley. But it is a, it's a good, it's a good book in terms of it's a story. It's a story about our people in, in a lot of ways. And a lot of the, the names we talk about in that, uh, we're going to talk about today, um, you know, Malcolm X uh, talks about some of those names in his, in his autobiography. And I thought it'd be a good, good book for my son to be able to get through because it's not like a dry, you know, history book, but more like a story. And so, um, you know, one of the things if, if, you know, you're trying to get your child and you, Maybe, Carl, you have a different recommendation, but I think if you're trying to get your youngster, you know, like, you know, your teenager or whatever, to kind of know something about their history, um, you know, that might be one book to do it. And, and oh, I yeah. wish that yeah. I, I yeah. used to have, I used to have, like, I used to have a poster of, um, and I don't know, where I used to have a long time ago a poster of black revolutionaries, you know, kind of a poster on my wall. And I wish I'd had that because I should have had that as they, as they were growing up. Uh, because, like I said, my daughter got it, you know, she got it really easy. I mean, she, she knows about all these people that we're going to talk about today. But whereas my son has, has not gotten that exposure, and he's not going to get it that much in high school. I know this for a fact. So I have to kind of try to gear him to hopefully that he can, you know, read this autobiography of Malcolm X and hopefully that will encourage him to read something else as well. Because a lot of these young people growing up today, they just, they just don't get exposure to these kind of books at all. I mean, none. I mean, you know, and it's very difficult, uh, you know, living in the computer age and, you know, these games, playing these games all the time, for them to slow down and do reading because reading is a, is a slower process than playing a, a computer game. But, but, let, but let's get started. I want to I wanna just tie in because I want to make sure we get through some of this list. Tie in uh, W. Du Bois and, and Marcus Garvey uh, as two great Pan-Africanists. Um, you know, Carl talked about the fact that, you know, we, we've all been in China. Like, you know, a lot of our uh, these revolutionaries have been in the socialist movements in one way or the other. Uh, w. Du Bois was definitely, I think he was in the Communist Party, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, uh, he, but he was not also, necessarily. He joined the Communist Party uh, during the, the latter part of his period, you know, of his right. life. He joined. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So he kind of, but he, he had some affiliation with it, but right. Exactly. Yeah. But he was more right. of a Pan Africanist. And some people call him kind of like the father of Pan-Africanism, if you will, because he called together the first Pan-African Congresses. And, and people need to understand something about this, because when we're talking about fighting for socialism, you know, again, that's been a part of our movement, but uh, most of our movement has been a struggle for, for liberation, uh, national liberation on, in terms of the African continent, you know, different nation states. The, you know, that's been that. And then also uh, the liberation in terms of, you know, decolonization of uh, decolonization, so fighting against colonization, uh, which, which, which is a part of class, but it's really a part of colonization and race and racism. So, so to even get to, you know, to even get to class, I mean, we have, we've had to spend most of our time, you know, fighting on that. And, of course, Du Bois uh, uh, was, was totally correct in terms of, you know, calling for the unification of Africa in terms of the African states coming together. And same thing with Marcus Garvey was a great Pan-African as he, he uh, at the same time was talking about, you know, going back to Africa and, you know, and, 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 and but he also created uh, an immense, you know, nationalist movement um, uh, around uh, at that time, 1920s, 1930s, 
And this was during the time of the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance was also, to me, a, 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 a revolutionary literary movement, to me, uh, because of the awakening of people like, um, you know, Langston Hughes and Zora Hurston and Claude McKay and people like that. So this time, this is a critical time period, and I was so... I'm so glad I was able to – I studied that time period when I went to college. That was – I did independent study, and I studied the Harlem Renaissance, which opened the whole door to, to W. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey at that time, and I just got into that, all that history, all that literature at that time, and, and was practically doing a lot of self-teaching, but at the same time I was writing an independent paper on the Harlem Renaissance that came out to be about 30 or 40 pages. But, but both of those Pan-Africanists, um, du Bois is just a grand figure in history in terms of a scholar, in terms of a writer. You know, he taught that he read the had the book called uh, The World in Africa. Um, he talked about the uh, another book about the Great um, Reconstruction, Black Reconstruction. Uh, and right. so, and Marcus Garvey was a great orator. So, two great figures. Um, Carl, you want to add some more to them? Yeah. Um... I I had to be reintroduced to I, I he was one once again that I did not know much about um and partly because I you know, like many of us I grew up um for more during the early periods more of a black nationalist and I wasn't too quite interested in W Du Bois until um I became uh, more of a socialist but the thing that I want to tell people about is, and I, and I, like you, I also give young people the first book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And the reason is, um, is you know, both the stories about different people he talks about, but the transformation mm-hmm. of a person that goes through, not for the purpose of making money or making themselves famous, but the pur- purpose of making themselves better to make other people's life better. So Malcolm X mm-hmm. went from, you know, uh, a, a thug, even though he was very bright and articulate, came from a, a, a progressive family, a much more liberal left nationalist family. Um, uh, he went about transforming himself to make himself better when he joined the nation. And from the nation, you know, he struggled with the many contradictions to, to free himself to move to a much more you know, uh, a broader black nationalist, uh, what we used to call revolutionary nationalist perspective. W.E. Du Bois was similar. W.E. Du Bois' first uh, uh, initial struggle with was with Booker T. Washington. Him and Booker T. Washington were the um, Booker T. Washington at the time was the leading uh, uh, black leader, or, or what we used to call the ordained white. He was ordained by white people as the black leader because he, his, uh, Booker T. Washington articulated that we can um, uh, make progress together as long as we're separate, and so um, and that we can do this without uh, you know black people need to focus on economics and not politics. Um, du Bois okay. argued that you know politics um, uh, is is power and power could change your economic position. So that tension between them was powerful, even though Du Bois agreed with some of the stuff that Booker T. Washington, which, uh, which he took with him as part of that struggle, going in, uh, into what is called the Renaissance um, Niagara movement. And the Niagara movement was both uh, the intellectual, the bright minds of, of, of black leaders at the time, 
um, that had struggled with Booker T. Washington. This was both a transformation for Du Bois in the sense that he was becoming more more socialist, but he was also uh, a transformation in the sense that the need for a, a, a political organization that can articulate from a particular point of view. Now, there was some tension with uh, uh, with him and, and, and other folks, um, but the, and, and again, he was not the best. You know, he was still changing. He was, again, he was still changing, but he, 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 he also studied dialectics at that time, so he was constantly struggling with himself and with ideas as well, which mm-hmm. made him, which uh, coming out of the Niagara movement, the, the establishment of NAACP, the crisis newspaper, which he had, and then there was a struggle. Part of that struggle was because he was becoming more and more um, pan-Africanist, and he was becoming more and more socialist, which rubbed up against the leadership of the NAACP, which he later broke from the NAACP. And um, for a number of years, he struggled with them, he was hoping maybe he could get back in and, you know, transform it. That wasn't going to happen. And um, during his early period, um, as I described, he had joined the Socialist um, Socialist Party, Labor Party at the time, I guess it was called. And um, But he had left them during the NAACP years because he was becoming more Pan-Africanist. During his latter year, when he left, the U.S. He just had he had enough um, because of McCarthyism and a lot of stuff. He left to go live in Africa. Uh, before he left, he signed up to be you know said I'm joining up the, to be a member of the Communist Party. But again, it's the question of transformation. Leaders, great leaders, um, whether men or women, always are trying to make themselves better, transforming themselves, learning more, seeking more knowledge in the interest not for themselves, so they can have all these plaques on the walls and scholars and say, I'm the Ph.D. of this and that. It, is, it was constantly in the interest of the uh, liberation of their people. Yeah, that, and that's, that's one thing that I, did. I told my son. You know, I said, you know, when you read this book, you're not even just reading about uh, history, but you're reading about a, a man who transformed himself, you know, and, you know, that's what's going to make an interesting story for you to read. So, so yeah. So, so Du Bois was definitely, you know, struggling with that. There was a lot of struggles during that time, time period, that everybody was engaged in. These are good. These are those struggles are even some of the struggles are even with us today. You know, when we talk about the question about politics versus economics, and people, some people thinking that you know, if we can just get more stores and we can own more businesses, that will make us things better. Whereas other people look like, no, this is a political struggle. You have political power. You know, those, those, those. Uh, uh, you know those fights and those struggles and those arguments are still alive with us today. So you, you see the roots of that, particularly in in, in the 19, 1920s. Um, but I wanted to so we just kind of really move kind of move forward. I don't want to. Okay. I know we can spend a lot of time on, either, on all of these. Oh, uh, one, of the, one of the leaders that I I grew up with was I talked about on the show I think before uh, is Kwame Nkrumah because I was in the um, All-African People's Revolutionary Party. And Kwame Nkrumah was also a great Pan-Africanist, led the decolonization of Ghana in 1957. And um, you're talking about a, you know, just a, a, the, the body of work that he put out, uh, you know, the, particularly the book, uh, the theoretical book on scientism, which is really just kind of a, 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 a theoretical work on decolonization, if you will. 
and that book is it's a thin book, but it's a very it's a it's a very well written theoretical book on decolonization and, and the liberation of the mind. Um, and so Kwame Nkrumah, um, you know, fought with you know to struggle with the, the decolonization of, uh, of Ghana from from uh, from England, and uh, and and he influenced the Pan African movement as, 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 in along with Du Bois and them. He influenced the Pan African movement and kept it going. And uh, he was also uh, leaning towards, uh, not even, no, he was a socialist too, because basically what he talked about was uh, the, the unification of Africa under scientific socialism. So, so he, he wrote uh, a couple of books even about that, as well as a handbook of revolutionary warfare. So these, these, were, these were giants, <laughs> you know, at that time. He was a serious giant uh, in the revolutionary struggle. And, uh, you know, he had read all the Marx and he read some Lenin and, and he's, you know, he's talking about these cats. And uh, so, so it's, it's really hardening when you don't have a lot of people who don't know about him and, and uh, maybe a lot of, a lot of a, a generation of people who probably will, you know, grow up and never read him, never be taught uh, his writings, you know. And I was, I was fortunate to get that only through coming through uh, the AAPRP and our, and our study group. So I, I, would, I would never been, I probably would never been exposed to Kwame Nkrumah, I don't think, anywhere else. I mean, it never came up in any classroom, college, no. anywhere, nowhere, you know, not, not in any class. Um, and, and yet still, he should be, there should be films about this man. There should be films about all of them um, to expose generations of people to that. So uh, Kwame Nkrumah, at the same time, um, you know, we, uh, Secretary out of Guinea was also a Pan-Africanist. Not a lot, of not a lot is being said about him as well. Um, and he fought the struggle of uh, Guinea to free Guinea from from France from uh, French colonization. These are great Pan-Africanists that I wish, you know, and hope that somehow they will get the attention that they need and deserve, and people start reading what they're saying because not only just looking at them as individuals. But what they had to say, what their insight was, what their struggles were, what their fight was, we need to know that history. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, um, I, 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 once again, you, you're right. You're not going to get that in, sc- in school. Um, and, no. and many, and, and, and in, that, in fact, in many places, they're not going to be talked about. Because you have to understand, um, during, the, during the 1960s and 1970s, um, they were considered, you know, communists or socialists, and and to um, public intellectuals and other intellectuals, they didn't want to write about this if they want to get their books published. But what happened was, is during the uh, the late '60s and early '70s, was that people began to say, "Hey, this is this is some we, these are people we want to read about. We want to know more about." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's the thing is too is not only that that the reason why not only they get people are scared of scared of these figures is because it's two of the most dangerous kind of men you can have or human being you can have is somebody who both is an activist and a prolific writer. So it's not like you know they were just doing one or the other; they were doing both. I don't know how they I don't know how they found time, particularly in the age of no computers. I don't know how they found time. But it was like in in in, in that time, um, you know, they were prolific in terms of being a, being speakers, being heads of organizations, 
and leading uh, anti-colonial struggles and anti-racist struggles. I mean, that's huge. I mean, a lot of people now today you know, just have a very difficult time being able to do both of those. Typically what people do, you're either kind of just kind of, you know, just activist and either you're a full-time activist or you're an activist out when you're off work or whatever, uh, or that you're, you're a professor, you know, and, and, and if you're a professor, a lot of times you may get, you may get time to, to write books and everything, but you tend not to always be an activist. So some of the few people who do that, of course, is Cornell West, for example, uh, was doing that. And, to, you know, so, and so we've always had figures where you have to be both a, a, a scholar, uh, a writer, as well as an activist. Um, Carla, Carla, are you still on? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought I heard you go off. So, so yeah. Um, so, so and, and then also we want to talk about Patrice Lumumba, which – uh, I forget what, where, where did he come out of. I not slip my mind. Where did he come out of? Uh, Congo. Congo, Congo man. Yeah. Right. right. What, you, yeah. The, uh, the, also a Pan Africanist as well. That's right. As well. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, the reason why um, Patrice uh, Lubumba is uh, is well is well known, uh, particularly among the Pan Africanist world, uh, and and also Malcolm X and other socialists recognize him was that up in most of the national liberation struggles in the 1950s were led by more uh, petty bourgeois or people who are connected to the government. And basically they want to maintain relationship, you know, you know, similar economic and political relationship with their um, uh, colonial power. Patricia Lubuma comes along um, and both wins the election, but also wins the leadership of the people uh, from from Belgium. And basically, at the first meeting, and tells them, um, Congo belongs to the Africans now, and we're going to control the resources and and uh, in our country. That didn't go over well. It, up until then, most of the leaders who were led the, the liberation it was simply says, "Well, we're not." You know, you can still keep your resources and you can still keep your stuff, um, but, you know, we'll, let us just run the government. Well, Patrice Lubuma says, no, no, th- all this belongs to the, the Congo, Congo people. We've suffered too much when you strip, the, you know, a, a lot of the, the, you know, the natural resources and you continue to strip the natural resources out of Congo. We want to have control of that. We want to nationalize that. We want to have control of all of Congo. We're not going to give up private sector stuff back to the to the Belgium. The Belgian government, uh, in cahoots with the U.S. because um, and Europe, other European countries, got together to, using the United Nations as their clearinghouse to basically say Patricia Lumumba have to go because Congo. They can have Congo politically, but they can't have Congo economically. Those resources still belong to us. And they um, orchestrated uh, the kidnapping and, and, and murder of Patrice Lubumba. Um, and basically, um, and part of, and the way they did it was to simply um, bought off one section. I forgot the guy who ran Zaire. Uh, uh, Mobutu, yeah, and so uh, he ran, yeah, he, he ran a part of of 
you know, renamed Congo Zaire and and, and different. And right. so what he what what he did was, uh, they he wanted to make sure he got he got cut a deal and, and was in the good graces of the uh, colonial power. So they took control of the mines and and declare a separate nation. Um, and so uh, they used that as a as a jumping off point to take out Patrice Labuma, but he was very progressive. I don't think he, he, he was never given a chance to fully develop um, as a full right. uh, scale um, Pan-Africans and a, and, and, and a socialist, but uh, his life was cut uh, short um, and the history and stories about him has been buried even to this very day in Congo. You cannot get his speeches or know about what he said um, in Congo because Congo is the most is one of the richest um, uh, country with natural resources in the world. That's where for a lot of your cell phones, you know, a lot of your electronic equi- uh, uh, material comes out of out of uh, out of Congo. And see, that, that's the thing. This is <laughs> this is the reason why. If you really want to understand why you, I don't why I don't trust white supremacy, is because these are some vicious, vile. People. When you're talking about European culture, you're talking about a culture of death and destruction and exploitation. That's what you're really talking about. I mean, I'm not saying the Europeans haven't done some great things, but by and large, they have, they have a serious history and culture of death, destruction, and exploitation of killing people. You want to read a book called King Leopold's Ghost. Yeah. That talks about the, the ravages of King Leopold for his ivory. And what they did to to enslave African people to to do this kind of, to do the work of of getting ivory and and, and I mean just I mean kept cutting off hands I mean just it's, it's brutal it's, it is sick and and when you read that book you begin to understand just what we're facing what we're what we have been facing these people are sick they are psychologically sick and they will do whatever they have to do. To, to gain power, to gain this privilege, to gain, um, you know, the ability to, to amass so much wealth. They can just live so luxuriously, you know, build castles and shit, right? This is done off of our people's back. This is, this is what's done. This is what our people fought against, have, have fought against and are still fighting. This is what's being done. And so when you read about Matrice Lumumba and then you read about how they – Trained and how uh, Mobutu Sesiko came up in Zaire, you know, and 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 to, to you know to change it. And he did it because he wanted to be the comprador, he, a, a comprador African. What that means is he wanted to work in the interest of his former colonies, former colonists. He wanted to work in the interest of them. He wanted liberation, but at the same time, he wanted to make money. He wanted to make you know make. He wanted to to benefit from the wealth. Of, uh, of the Congo And make money at the same time But so by doing that He, he, he kept his ties With, with, uh, with England and, 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 uh, or, or not England But uh, the, uh, the Belgians Kept ties with them And so, so, so you, to understand, you gotta understand This history to understand why We are in the state of where we are This stuff just didn't die like Oh well that happened back then No this stuff is still living with us It's still living this stuff is still in Africa even to this day, this kind of mentality. It's just like when I was 
just a little pity. Well, not really a pity example. It's like just like kind of a more visceral example. When I was in Ghana in '94, and we went to what's called the Nkrumah Circle, and that was kind of the they were building this kind of honor to Nkrumah. You know, brought that he died. And, and across the street was the the courthouse. You know, it was a court section. Like we have, you know, you have courts in any city uh, in in America. You have these courthouses. So out walked this African who was looked like maybe a judge or a um, a, um, a a lawyer or whatever. And, and so we, I, I was getting ready to take a picture of him, but I'm, I noticed that this man was wearing the British wig. You remember those British wigs that that, mm-hmm. that the lawyers and the judges wear? You remember that? And, and, and it just reminded me of just how the colonial mentality, this was 1994, and it was still within Ghana. You see my point? Even after liberation, that colonial mentality had not been removed. Um, mm-hmm. we could, I could go all over Ghana and not see hardly any white person except for, except for people standing in the street holding up pictures of a white Jesus. You get my point? That colonial mentality is still strong. It still takes hold of our people. And even don't you think because you're an you 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 of African sit in America that you 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 are immune? No, you're not. We still have a lot of that. We still struggle with that. And so to read about these people is to read about how we went through this decolonization at, uh, a process. You know that's the reason why a lot of times. I've given my kids African names. I took on an African name. That's the reason why um, you see a lot of people start doing that in the 60s, is to try to struggle with this decolonization, this mental, decolon- this mental colonization of our mind. And so that brings me to another uh, 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 revolutionary named Franz Fanon out of Algiers. Franz Fanon, when I read his book, uh, Wretched of the Earth, if you haven't read that book, I, I don't know what to say about you. That is that is the one book in terms of talking about again what colonization did to our mentality, right, and how it made us do the things that we do and and, and the things that we, you know, and, and to ha- even have fear of ourselves and each other, and he and he was a psychologist, but he's writing about psychology, uh, the, the psychology, from from the from from the point of what it means to be oppressed. Um, and, and how that oppression affects us. And I think you also wrote a book called Black 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 Lives Black No, it's called Black Minds Black White White Something. White Faces I mean, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll look it up. But um, but in terms of you know, I really there's been some study calls lately too of about the psychology of slavery. You know what what how what the the, the psychological impact that is. And and I like to see you know. Certainly, we want to talk about psychological impact of enslavement on our people, but I also want to talk about the psychological impact of the oppressor, the white oppressor. Because I think these people are sick. I think they're pathologically sick, and I think it needs to be talked about that because if they don't understand their sickness, they will continue, as we, as we see it today, continue to do what they're doing uh, because they're pathologically sick. You understand what I'm saying? Right. I. I, I, I w- it was one of the books I read in high school. It was, it was, it was mm-hmm. the one that oh, wow. made, it was it was the book that said I am a revolutionary. After that, um, uh, mm-hmm. because it was a book that not only um, spoke to the psychological impact, but it also the interconnection of 
the impact of, of violent oppression on people and how people respond. Yes. Um, it speaks yes. to why people respond the way they do. It also one of the things it talks about, it, which many um, don't do, is that he knew that if we internalize that oppression, we will be just like the oppressor. So if we take right. in all that sickness, we will practice sickness on others. And this is in one of the chapters where he, where he talks about the pitfall of national liberation, that many of the leaders uh, of a lot of these national liberations were trained um, in many cases by Christian schools. They were the most educated, the brightest. And oftentimes they took on many of the the ways, as you talk about in Ghana, without actually tra- transforming themselves. They just, they, they, they just wanted all the things that the oppressor have without the white oppressor, the white colonialist. And so, mm-hmm. and he talks about you can't, you can't be well if you still have sickness inside of you. You need to transform yourself in the process, which Andre Lloyd talks about. You can't use the master's to take down the master's house. And part of that is you can't be like them and assume that once you empower, you're different. Um, you're not different if you're taking in and, re- and replicating all the same things. And so he speaks to that. And he also speaks to the question, which is fundamental in any, in any oppressive condition where people, the only thing they have left is violence. And he talks about how that violence um, has a du- dual role, a, du- a duality about it. And on one hand, it is not the best way to struggle, but on the other hand, if that's all you have left, it becomes a liberating process. This is where he talks about armed struggle and, and uh, when, when the oppressed doesn't have any other tools, any other options, and everything else is foreclosed, and particularly when everything around them is so bloody. Um, and, and so he talks about that in that process and, uh, um, and, and, and how that shapes and impacts. Uh, it was powerful for me because it really put into perspective what was going on around me. I mean, I didn't have a Marxist perspective at the time, but at, it, it, it kind of set, gave me some parameters, a, 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 a basis for which to understand all this hellish stuff that was taking place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the name of that book is another book. The other book he wrote is black skin, white mass. That's what it was. Right. But yeah, I mean, and now I understand, you know, to really read these works and, and to, to understand these other, you really have to kind of immerse yourself into oh, yeah. to African black history. I mean, you, you really, yeah. I, and I imagine trying to pick this book up without having done some prior you know, prior reading of maybe say you know Du Bois or Garvey or people like that. I mean, you know, you, you you're gonna have to do that. And that and and and, I, and for those if any young people out here listening, that's one that we always encourage you to do. You know, is is to study. You know, to set up like you know study groups. You know, get get together and and say, hey, you know, get a a book club. If you want to call it a book club together and just start reading and start discussing this stuff. I mean, that's you know. It's not that one of the reasons make a commitment. Yeah, one of the reasons why we had to do it when we were young, um, um, you know, I was eighteen, nineteen years old um, mm-hmm. when I had joined a left group. And the reason why we were told to read the book was any bootleg opportunist hustler can 
for quote some passages out of the book. See, at, at the time, yeah. we, there were a lot of hustlers who were quoting um, Mao Zedong, the Little Red Books, which are nothing but more than a bunch of quotes. But they didn't know in the context of what that all means. So people could tell you what Huey or, you know, Malcolm X said, but if you've never read the book, if you never read it, you know, Franz Fanon, they'll tell you, oh, you know, Franz Fanon said this. People make up stuff, and, and, and it'll sound good, and you'll fall for it without ever once reading The Wretches of Earth. If you read the book, you have a better sense of whether someone is, is BSing you or whether they are, 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 are articulating it and fully understand what it means. Plus, in a study group, you, you can find out whether or not, you know, you, did you fully understand it before you grasp it? And you have many different points of views of looking at the same mm-hmm. particular book. So it helps to deepen your understanding versus have a shallow, because a shallow, a shallow understanding is just flip to the back part of the book or read somebody else's review and you can move on. But a deep understanding. Well, and that, and that, that's, the thing, that's the thing that we talked about is to, in the, in the, in the APRP was to, not only you know just to not only read but to read primary sources. Don't right. read what somebody says about somebody. Read what they say. Even if you want to, if you want to talk about Hitler, as I remember Kwame Ture talked about it. You want to read about Hitler? Don't read what somebody said about uh, Hitler. Read what Hitler said. Read Mein Kampf. Right. Read what he wrote. You know. Mm-hmm. So, but but yeah. So so the reading gives you insight. You know, it, it gives you an understanding of of the struggles even to why we have some of these struggles today. Gives you a history of that. Uh, uh, and, and so we, we we encourage you to do that because I think that's what's kind of fundamentally missing from a lot of struggles, and not only just you know black struggle or whatever, but just a struggle overall is people don't have a sense of history and a sense of analysis. And these these are both these writers that we're talking about. These people we're talking about they were both activists and theoreticians and scholars and writers. I mean, they were all again. I don't even know how most of us can't do that shit today. Well, I don't know what, right. what happened. What I don't know what happened, but most of us just can't. We don't have that kind of output, um, and, uh, and and yet we have you know we have all these tools that are, that are available to us. And and these cats had, I mean they were they were writing heat, you know like either writing pen and pencil, you know I mean pen and uh, paper, paper or type or slow typewriter, and 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 also had you know just day to day kind of struggles that we can't even imagine, imagine. and they had to to uh, produce out of that. But um, one. One book that I, I uh, another one going on to another one. Th- these two are related. Um, Amir yeah. Cabral, Amir Cabral uh, uh, was yeah. um, a guerrilla uh, fighter and leader in uh, Guyana and Cape Verde. He led the um, you know the African Party for the Independence of Guyana and um, and Cape Verde. The book that I I read till the pages fell off. In fact, I had to reorder the book so I could have my copy again because I I read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Was Revolution in Guyana, um, a selected text by Emir Cabral. And the reason why is that it's it's only the book is about um, you know 172 pages. They're fairly brief. They're very condensed. Most of them are speeches or directives that he would give to his uh, his troops, his, his, his guerrilla army. Um, the one piece that uh, – there's lots of good stuff in there. I mean, it's, it's, he's a Marxist. He's used deep Marxist analytical theory. 
Um, one piece that we oftentimes used to tell our folks to come back to read in the chapter called Tell No Lies, Claim No Easy Victory, and particularly this quote right. where we, we tell people, please read this quote and then get, get up on out of here. We must practice revolutionary democracy in every aspect of our party life. Every responsible member must have the courage of his responsibility, exacting from others a proper respect for his work and properly respecting the work of others. Hide nothing from the masses of our people, tell no lies, expose lies where, whenever they are told, mask no difficulty, mistakes, failure, claim no easy victories. Basically, you have to be humble. This is the part that Masi Tung used to always, um, uh, in many of his writing on liberalism, uh, on contradiction, on practice, the numbers were. And Ever Cabral um, was a follower of his of, of of his work. And it's again, please, if you can, um, you know, wherever you. I know that's not sold in any bookstore, so you have to get it on Amazon. But Revolution in Guyana is one. The other one is CRL. James. Most people mm-hmm. know this book from Black Jacobson. A powerful book. It's a dialectical book in a sense is that it's not a, um, it's a moving story, but it tells you in, in a tradition of a, uh, I, I, and again, he's, C.R.L. He, J- James um, is, is from the Caribbean. I, forget, I don't know if he's from Jamaica. Um, he, his, his piece um, uh, is one that we used to we used to strongly tell people about because it t- talks about the Haitian Revolution. The other book right. that we used to tell people was the history of the Pan African Revolt, and um, mm-hmm. he wrote this piece um, uh, as part of trying to struggle with a lot of his uh, uh, white uh, comrades in um, in London in the in, the, in that were in the Trotskyist party to get them to understand that. Don't stop waiting for white workers to rise. There were so many African revolutions that were popping up that we need to acknowledge and to to support and, and, and be a part of the solidarity movement. So that was the reason why he wrote the history of the black, the Pan-African revolt. Not so much to tell a Pan-African story about, you know, these are the great people, because there's no, in it, 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 it hardly talks about any one single person. It talks about these masses of people from, uh, you know, throughout, throughout Africa, uh, the United States, um, it, you know, it, 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 Santa Domingo, um, you know, in the Caribbean, South Africa. He talks about all these revolts that were taking place in struggle of average everyday masses to, to, trying to do, um, you know, doing uh, Herculean uh, efforts and work against immense odds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I, I, didn't read, I, I still don't remember the name of the book that we read. It was a, it was a collection of, of his writings as well. I don't think it was the name that you gave, but I, and I can't remember it right now. But, but mm-hmm. definitely... Uh, somebody and, and both of those were were pan African as well. I mean, if you and I see somebody on uh, follow somebody on Twitter, the young a young guy, a uh, young person who talks about uh, uh, a lot of pan Africans in his tweets and stuff like that. And so he's one of the rare people I that I see on on Twitter to get anywhere near talking about the, what these these these, uh, these leaders here. And but again, yeah, definitely uh, check out this. You know, Emil Carl Cabral and uh, C. L. L. James. Excellent stuff there. I uh, just want to kind of pivot to um, a couple of, you know, female writers as well and, and activists. You know, we know 
most people probably know Anthony Davis and uh, Sata Shakur, Anthony Davis, coming out of the, um, the Black Panther Party, was also in the uh, CPC, right? The Shooting Communist Party. Um, right. And, you know, Party. of course, she's still around today um, and uh, does a lot of speaking and things of that sort. He's written a lot of, written several books and stuff like this. These are, these are hardline strugglers. I mean, you know, you can learn a lot about, not only about, you know, what they stood for, but they on how they, how they dealt with the, their own personal odds, the things that they were having to go through personally, as well as you know, Amber Davis was uh, was jailed, and um, while she was in the in the um, in the, uh, uh, the the Black Panthers, and uh, just played a critical role in the in, in, in the in the struggle for that, but was in also inside the struggle with the struggle within the Black Panther Party. Uh, uh, you know, was part, also a part of that as well. So I mean, that was it was it well, that was huge, and uh, uh, it's great to see her that she's still around. She's still talking. She's still speaking. She's still writing. Uh, right. One of the few Black Panther, and, Panthers who survived. Right, and one of the things that I often tell um, young people who, um, they, because they ask the question around race, class, and sex, I always tell them go to Angela Davis. She mm-hmm. has, mm-hmm. you know, her book, you know, race, class, and sex. Uh, really makes the interconnection long before this quote unquote in, in sex, when sexuality came into into vogue. Um, she right. wrote about it, spoke about it, clearly articulate. Most people speak of sexuality um, it, only from race and sex, and they drop the class. And when they think of class, they think of social class. What Angela Davis spoke about true class, working class, uh, against the bourgeoisie, you know, her, her, you know, analysis doesn't speak to the struggle between, you know, the, the lumped in and, and, and the middle class. That's not, that, that's, that's, that's a different dynamics and it doesn't speak to the reality of what's taking place. So it's a, her, and she has a number of books and now she writes on the obsolete, you know, op, how to op, make prison obsolete you know, on the you know the incarceration mm-hmm. movement, she's still engaged. She's still she's uh, very articulate. But usually, I tell people the book I want you to read is you know the autobiography of Angela Davis, I think, or something. It's something like the autobiography. I, I have to go back and find my book on that. Yeah, it's it's been so longer. Yeah, and then because I think I gave it to my daughter, um, and then um, uh, you know the one I'm you know class, race, and and, and sex. So. Mm-hmm. But there's she has a lot of good material. Most people think of Angela Davis as the icon of the radical 60s of the Black Power movement, the Afro, the fist. And so they only want to know the shallow part of Angela Davis. And they, people need to get past the picture and get to know her writing, her work, her struggle, her transformation, her coming out of Alabama during the, you know, the uh, the bombings that were taking place during the civil rights movement. They were there when the uh, three little girls um, were bombed at, you know, at, at the church. Uh, they they lived in the same mobile uh, uh, Alabama at the time. Their parents were very radical on the left. I mean, it tells you a lot about the struggles and challenges that people go through um, and uh, what they went through uh, to continue to keep the flame alive. Uh, uh, Asada Shakur in Cuba, it keeps the flame alive and articulate in an analysis today as to how to struggle, even when, you know, 
the the days are darkest and bleak. Um, I oftentimes use um, um, her struggle, Sada Shakur's struggle, as well as I use uh, Massey Tong's uh, story, not as necessary a story, but there's books on the long march. I always like to tell people Mm -hmm. stories when, not when this, when you when things are going good at the peak of the movement when money is flowing and everybody's calling your name. It is when the most difficult period tests you and steal you as to who you truly are, what you truly stand for. And it was the same for Lenin during the time during the difficult time where people said, "Oh, the post was a bunch of little ragtime operation. They all, you know." followers of Lenin, you know, that none of them got a brain in, in between them, and they're only like 10 guys anyway. So it, it, it said during, the, during the difficult period, really steals, it helps uh, focus you on what you truly are and what your true analysis of your true mission of what you're trying to achieve. And so that's one of the reasons why we, you know, both read the autobiography yeah. as well as to read their yeah, work. Yeah, and, and read all now she, you know, uh, she has later she has later works on the prison industrial complex. You know, all those very short, almost like pamphlets to mm-hmm. read up on, uh, and, and talking about the notion of you know what, what is it? Just imagine, you know, having a society where, where there's no need for prisons, where we can get rid of prisons. That is a that is something that we really, we should do a show on that actually because it's something to it's a vision that we should we should still have. You know, it was not only that she you know talks about that, but even. A lot of uh, sociologists were talking about that in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, the notion of, you know, uh, getting rid and uh, but since, you know, getting rid of prisons and not having them and what that would mean, uh, and, and ironically, we, we went, this country has gone in the, in the totally opposite direction. But another, another book for, for, for a lot of college students, um, you know, might want to read The uh, Women, Culture, and Politics. That's a, a book of essays as well. Really easy to read. You don't have to have a lot of background on anything to read that book, so you can pick that book up as well. For me, um, Asada Shakur's book, and I don't know a lot, a lot about Asada Shakur, but I know I, I remember reading her book uh, back in the day when it first was released. Carl, that was one of the most beautiful books I've read, uh, even more so than Malcolm X's autobiography, because. You're talking about an you're talking about a, a woman, a, a person, a person of African descent. It's talking about her coming into consciousness. You know, that is just, it was just the way she talked about coming into consciousness and what it meant to her. That's what the whole book is about. You know, a lot of people I think love it and really like like that book and really like Asada Shakur because when you read that, um, you really begin to see who you are. You know, as a person of African descent. You know, the notion of you know, going from, you know, um, frying your hair to growing a natural, just just something like just something that now we may take for granted. Uh, that it was so real back in that time to understand the the having a sense of who you are, changing your name, to have an understanding of who your people are and valuing your people. The, those those things that time that she was writing that that's that was that was a critical moment in in our history. That was a critical moment when. The APRP was out there talking about we are African people, and I would be on campus, other people be on campus and say, yo, African, you know, just, just really trying to bring in that, that consciousness of who we are, reclaiming that which was stolen from us. That book does that. It is a story. You don't have to know anything about past history to read that story. You can read it like you read a novel, right? And, and to me, 
Carl, these are the kind of books. See, us being integrated within this white, dominant white school, this is what our kids are losing out on. You see what I'm point? Mm-hmm. Our kids, are, they're, they're, wasting their, they're wasting their lives, four, five, eight years of their lives in school because they never get this. They never get it, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, this is what is missing. You know, when I used to teach, I used to, when I, I was required to, quote, unquote, required to teach Huckleberry Finn, but I would say, you know what, I come, I come to class and say, no, I got this book, Huckleberry Finn, and I got The Narrative Life of Cedric Douglas. You choose. Okay? <laughs> and, and, and I knew that most of them would choose Narrative Life, but some of them would choose Huckleberry Finn. Then we'd get into this discussion about the differences in the point of view about slavery. You see my point? Those are rich discussions. God damn it, man, you're just not going to get that nowhere. Do you see what I'm talking about? You're not going to get that on social media. You're just not going to get it. The only way that you're going to get it is that you have to start a book, a book club or work study group, that you have to do some self-education yourself. That's the only way you're going to get it. You're not going to get it from dominant white or even mainstream white schools. You're not, you're not going to get that from public schools. You're not going to get that unless we're on – Unless black parents who have read this stuff themselves, not just know some names, but actually reading this stuff themselves, go getting on these school boards and going to these parent councils and all that and start demanding that the curriculum be changed. We don't do that no more, Carl. We don't even talk about the curriculum anymore. We're too busy having to deal with our kids going to getting arrested, right? getting suspended. We don't even talk about the frigging curriculum. What are they teaching our kids when they go there? And so that book, I would highly suggest that anybody of African descent read that book. Be you on the continent of Africa, off the continent of Africa, read that book. It's, it's just a really powerful book. That book and, and an autobiography will get you started. That will get you started, and then you can go back and read, you know, some of the more heavier, the heavier books. But those two books. I think should be required reading for every child, every black African child, everyone. That would be the core. That would be the core for me. But go ahead. No, I, I think, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I can't say enough of, uh, you know, people should read, uh, you know, many of the materials that we talked about. But, you know, start with those two. We always tell people mm-hmm. to start with those two. You know, you don't have to do what I did. I didn't start with those two. I, I read Malcolm X right. after I read Fanon. Um, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, and the reason why I read Franz Fanon was in order to be a member of the Black Panther Party during the early period, you had to read works like that. And so mm-hmm. I said, well, I want to be a Panther when I graduate, and I better read this. And I had a dictionary in one hand, and I didn't know half of these words. I didn't know half of, you know, what you know, what they were talking about. So I had to read it a couple of times. I know a cat. Um, um, gosh, she's an artist. You and I know him. Um, um, he was in the, in the party. Um, he, mm-hmm. he did the Black Panther uh, coloring book. Yeah, that uh, was... Akasanya. Uh, yeah, Akasanya. Yeah, Akasanya. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mar- yeah, Mark, Mark, yeah, Mark Timmer. Yeah, he, 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 he basically did not know how to read. Yeah. He... When he joined yeah. the Panthers, the Panther Party says, you're going to learn how to read. And so yeah. one of the books you're going to learn how to read was The Wretches of Earth. Now, I wouldn't have recommend that book first, but 
those were all the required reading stuff. People have well, to understand you know, back back in those well, days. Wait, 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 but just on that point, just on that point before you move, I was mm-hmm. in the work study. We were in the work study cell with with uh, Akasanya. Because like I said, you was living in L.A. at one point, and he came back to Sacramento, you know, back and forth, and and he still struggled with yeah. that with that reading. But but he, but just so people know that he he produced what well, he was famous for producing this, I think it was a cartoon book or something like that. Yeah, a coloring book. Mm-hmm. A coloring book, and it was you know when it got printed a lot and rolled around. But he still struggled. Uh, some many people back then struggled with the reading. You know, when you're reading. Uh, the world in Africa, for example, was a, was a struggle for a lot of people. Those who stayed in it, those who stayed and didn't give up, came out, including me, came out with a, to me, a, a at least a BA degree in African <laughs> studies, right? And our, and our, well, not only did they study, a BA degree in our people. It right. was, this was not some academic thing for us. This was about who our people was and what our struggle was. So no, it wasn't no it wasn't no BA at academic. It wasn't no academic. It this was truly uh, a, a activist reading to to under, right. you took that information and you did something with it. You just didn't write about it. You just didn't do many of us did do papers around the stuff that we were studying, but we took that stuff into our day to day struggle on the campus and into the streets. That's what we did with that information, you right. see, and that's and, what's and, and missing for, today. And for, you know, Arkansasian people like him and the Black Panther Party who were just interested, this was a life-and-death struggle for them. They were getting shot at by the mm-hmm. police. Um, you know, they yeah. just came back from the Vietnam War. I mean, to exactly. them, reading and studying was part of the work you did because the the struggle for liberation could not be one-legged. It couldn't be just engaged in the you know, the battle against the police, it had to be the battle for the hearts and minds of the people to raise their political consciousness. You got to know your stuff because the, because the master studies you day in and day out. It's time that you also study and, and, and be on top of your game about the knowledge and history of your people and the people from around the world. You have to be able, because people are looking to you as leaders, whether you wanted it or not, because once you step up and engage in the struggle, you must have a knowledge and understanding all around you. Now, I always always have a footnote at the end. Reading anything doesn't necessarily make you knowledgeable. So reading junk stuff doesn't necessarily make you very knowledgeable. You have to be a critical reader. You have to determine what stuff you need to read to raise, to raise your political consciousness, your social consciousness, your economic consciousness, and all those things. And you must be a critical reader around junk that comes to you, to think rationally, with reason, with uh, what we used to say scientifically, to use the dialectics to strip apart and understand and deepen your knowledge. So just reading any book, because there's lots of books and material out there, but lot, there's a lot of junk stuff out there. You have to be prepared and, and, and know where to read good stuff. So when we were coming up, we didn't have no Amazon. We didn't have no Internet to find the books. I remember half of the books were out of print of, of, of all my black communists. So a lot of my black communist material all out of print. Harry Haywood, 
you know, Claudia Jones, I mean, a ton of people, you know, uh, Benjamin Davis. There was like a ton of these guys who I didn't know because their books were out of print. And so what I had to do mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, you know, I had to meet some of the elders and others and say, hey, where can I get some? And so people would Xerox pages for me because I seeked out good knowledge. And I, I made sure that I, was, I would read other stuff, but I would read it with a critical eye and a scientific eye and discern whether this is good stuff or bad stuff. So the material we're suggesting for you to read to, as part of black, you know, African history is to read, you know, you know, read some of the selections that we're recommending, but don't assume that it's a complete set. So, yeah. for example, hey Carl, hey Carl, let, let me. Uh, we got a we got a reader. I'm not a reader. We got a uh, call in. We have about okay. 13 minutes for call. I'm going to let you in. We have a quick question or comment. About 13 minutes left. Here we go. Uh, it's 404 caller. Are you there, caller? Hey, hey, how y'all doing, man? Hey, hey how you Carl doing? Bakari. Hey, <laughs> good to hear. Hey, Nas, good to hear you guys hey, doing the thing, man. Your phone number, man. Dang. Okay, right on. Good for you to call in, brother. Yeah, come on Indeed. with it, man. You got we got thirteen minutes left. Put us out there. Yeah, what's your recommendation, bro? Uh, I I don't know what's been named already. So if you already have, you know, that just means we're on the same page. But I I would throw out uh Eric Williams' Capitalism and Slavery. Oh yeah, uh, there you I go, think, brother. <laughs> I think that's a that's see, a great one that's a good to one. Yeah. really get yeah. an understanding see, on see, see, what not, we're dealing not, with. See, not, you know, this is the reason why I keep you on my on my text thing. I always I keep texting you, brother. So you come on back anytime you want to. <laughs> Definitely capitalism and slavery. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and indeed, and capitalism and slavery is why it's difficult for me to call now working two jobs. So it, it is. <laughs> yeah, I, know I know, brother. I know, <laughs> I know that. Brother. We appreciate you calling in. I know that. But yeah, capitalism and slavery so, is. A very good book to talk about because people are talking about like you know well you know sla- uh, slavery really didn't really help America that much anyway yeah okay read that book and see right right and I'm just gonna hang back and listen but the other thing I wanted to add was the when you find good books and you read great works they lead you to other works because they cite oh, different yeah. sources mm-hmm. they'll refer to another book or another author. And I always had that breadcrumb uh, trail thing when I was younger uh, from going to the library and, and finding other books based on what I was reading at the time. And, you know, yeah, good taste leads to better taste. So that, that's just what it is. Well, that, well, that, that, that's what I did when I was in uh, my last year in high school. I started getting to uh, the poet Nicky Giovanni. And, uh, and and I don't even know how. I, I, well, I know how I stumbled upon her. I was, she had a, a, an album. Um, that she put out, you know, like a jazz album with her poetry, and I happened to listen to it, and and and, and I was, you know, part of I, we were bust, you know, integrated school kind of thing, so we didn't get any history about ourselves. I mean, if, if I had not heard Nikki Giovanni, then I would never have started reading about our people because there was nothing, there was no, nothing in my family, nothing in my school that introduced me to these kind of people. So when I started reading Nikki Giovanni, then. I started wanting to read what she read, the names she talked about. She talked about James Baldwin, so I read James Baldwin. Then I wanted to read what well, James Baldwin talked about, Richard Wright, so I read Richard Wright. Richard Wright talked about these people. You know, it's like you said, that breadcrumb, all these people led me into eventually, you know, going into uh, literature as a, as a major. But it was just every time I read somebody, 
to introduce somebody else to read. And, and, and I, I felt like I never would have enough time to read all these books, but reading is a lifelong thing. You, you never, you, it never ends. I and mean, I still, to this day, have, you know, a huge book list of books that I probably would never get to in my lifetime. But that, that's a good point, Nauseous. When you read one book, that's what I say. If you read the autobiography of Malcolm X or Sada Shakur, they will introduce you to these other people you should be reading as well. Because they, they will either name drop or talk about these cats, read them as well. So, yeah, definitely good. I don't know why we forgot about that one, but uh, Capitalism Slave, we might have talked about it before another show, too. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, we did. We got, we got about nine minutes left. Uh, anybody else? I know we talked about Malcolm X. Or, oh, Kwame, Kwame Ture. People formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. We talked about him on the show as well. Pan Africanist uh, in the APRP, as well as the Black Panther Party and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as in the civil rights movement, as well, alongside King. I mean, you're talking about a transformative individual, um, just totally spent his entire life, adult life, uh, committed to revolution. I mean, just, you know, died revolution on his tongue, really. Uh, and then, uh, Carl, talk, to, talk about Manny Marable really quickly, too. Yeah, Mar- Manny Marable is, uh, it, it, I, I would say, it's kind of like the product of the 80s um, and, and, and the early 90s. Uh, this is after the new communist movement had pretty much collapsed um, by 1980. Mm-hmm. And Manny Marable comes onto the scene, um, and he was uh, a public intellectual, and in, in, in in one of the greatest work that he put to, uh, produced was the uh, uh, how capitalism undeveloped um, Black America. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's not necessary. The the concept in its totality is not necessarily new because um, Errol Errol Afari, um I think it's Errol Afari Hutchison, uh, wrote a book called The Myth of Black Capitalism in the '60s, which used to be our right. Bible to go after these Black capitalist folks. Um, um, but he, um, uh, but that book went out of print, and so by the time that Manny Marable produced uh, uh, "How Capitalism Undeveloped um, uh, uh, Black America," uh, it was a powerful book because it did two things. One, it talks about the economic system, the rise of of uh, uh, you know incarceration and and the and, and the collapse of 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 the black working class. Um, it also speak to the question of sexism, which was not in many of the earlier works, did not speak to that issue. Um, uh, many of those of us in the new communist movement spoke about it, but, you know, we, our, many of our works was not, you know, was, you know, wasn't on the top best sell of, of the, you know, the New York time or anything like that. So, plus we didn't believe in uh, copyright law. So, um, um, but what happened was that he was part of the group that um, both the Democratic Socialist America and then later when the Communist Party had a split, um, the group called the uh, Committee of Correspondence, which Angela Davis, um, Charlie Mitchell, and a number of other mm-hmm. folks broke off, and he joined and became a, a very active member of that. And then later he became active member of the, uh, of, the, uh, the, of the group that the Black Radical Congress. Um, uh, so let, but, but let, let me let me also say too. You can remind me of, of Walter Rodney's book, "How Europe Under the Right." Africa. Uh, right. That that oh. is again another seminal book that uh, uh, that must be read if, if you're talking about reading 
um, the history of uh, history of Africa and, and and that kind of struggle. That book will give you an understanding of how it happened. You know, it, it that is the like the definitive book. But again, you're not yeah. going to get that anywhere. You're not going to if you go to UCLA. Maybe if you even go to Howard University, you probably won't get it. No, this you won't is a get book that you're going to have to pick up yourself. Walter Rodney was a a classic Marxist, but at the same time giving an analysis of Africa. Um, and the European struggle, that was the book. You know, I read, I think I read that book about three times. That, you know, grand figure, grand scholar. And the book is, right. not, and it's, and it's not difficult to read. It's not like dry no. reading. So, so, uh, so I think Manny Barrable kind of took an offshoot of he that. Used it, yeah, the, he used uh, it as a know. template. He used it as a template. Yeah, the template. To, uh, right. uh, for, but it's not as, it's not as good as Walter Rodney's book. I mean, his yeah. book is, yeah. is is part nine, even to this very day, um, in my opinion, is uh, part nine, one of the best books. I, I wish someone would yeah. do an update to bring some of the data and stuff, but not change his analysis, because um, people, when people mm-hmm. do that, they strip out the the left, socialist, Marxist analysis and, you know, try to hey, water well, wasn't, crap wasn't down. That book, yeah. Wasn't that book, I want to say that book was published by, I don't think Howard University had a publishing press, did it? Because I'm, I want to say that that they published. No, it, maybe um, I don't think it, maybe not. Was, I'm trying to yeah. think he did it. I have to look it up. But but I, I don't know why I keep thinking he something about him and Howard University. I can't remember what that was about. But I mean, I don't know. I think he but, yeah, spoke no, I mean, there. I think he spoke there, but I don't think it came out of um, Howard yeah, University. In fact. Press. Um, uh, it, the, the, the copy I have, I'm looking at it right now. It's a 1972 version, so it's yeah. This yeah. is this no, this is 1981, so it's a, re, a revision. Um, this one came from out of yeah. You're right, Howard University Press. See, that's what I thought. That's what yeah. I thought because I remember I was yeah. doing the work study yeah. back in the yeah, day. Right. We were like Howard, you know, Howard put this out over here. Like, <laughs> yeah. But that's cool, you know. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, like again, and, and my question would be today: Does anybody at Howard read the book? Uh, right. I mean, shit. If you want to know how it happened, if you want to, if you really want, don't don't you be thinking that you know you think you know it because you know somebody mentioned it in your in your you know history book or history class or whatever. You got to read this book if you want to understand how that happened. I mean, that, that's right. it. I mean, you, there ain't no way around that. I mean, if you ain't read it, then I don't know what to say about you. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know. Um, so yeah, so I mean that what? one in capitalism and slavery must read, definitely must read. Right. See, um, so, so we're coming to an end. We're coming to an end, but I really want people to understand the reason why we chose this topic is again, you know, I don't think that our kids are getting exposure to this this kind of history, this kind of rich history, not only just history but analysis, because it's more not you know it's more about how we view the world. These are visionaries. These are all visionaries. These are strugglers. These are people who had a vision. They didn't just sit back and tell them, this is how it's going to be because we can't do any better. This is the kind of bullshit that the mentality that, that a lot of people have today is that, and I'm not talking about people in Black Lives Matter because I think Black Lives Matter has a little bit more, uh, uh, some more consciousness than most. But I'm talking about most people say, well, you know, that's just how it is. Nothing we can really do about it. This is the kind of mental change that, are, that not only people of African descent facing, but people in general facing. This is the reason why we have Trump in office because you got that that mental enslavement in your head, right? Even and, and also because white folks are psychotic. I, I, I'm I'm sorry, but there's a lot of white people who just got some pathological problems, and they need to really focus on that 
And we've also picked up some of that. And if you were to read these, these books, if you were to study this history, you will see why I say this. I'm not just saying this to be saying shit. I'm talking about having done all this study makes me conclude that we are in mental slavery right now, that we are pathologically, some, many of us are pathologically got problems, you know, and that might include myself. Oh, I ain't immune to it. I'm just saying we got a problem until we start, until we start, uh, um, until we start realizing that and, 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 and coming to grips with that, we won't get any better. You guys, anybody want to some closing remarks? We have a minute, two minutes left. Less than two minutes. Yeah, I just wanted to just do a shout out from uh, Kiana uh, Taylor um, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. I strongly recommend people to read that book because it's an analysis of today um, and some of the um, arguments that are raised to justify racism, whether it's caste or whatever kind of theory. So it's a, it, and it's relevant for today. A lot of these books were written. We we are we presented today about uh, from other. Other, about other people, about the uh, stuff they, they produce uh, in their period, but please check that out as well. Well, brother, brother Nod, thanks, thanks a lot, man, for coming back on. We, we got to come and liberate you from one of them jobs, brother. <laughs> we need you back. <laughs> we need you back. <laughs> hey, man, in due time, in due time, man. I'm going to keep downloading and listening. Y'all keep putting in the work, man. Much respect. Thank you, thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, so next week, folks, right. we're going to be... Uh, we're going to be talking about protests, boycotts, and general strikes, and the differences between those, the problems that we see with those. And then after that, we, after next week, we're going to have Jody Dean, who's the author of Crowds and Politics. You want to listen in on that. She's also on uh, YouTube. You can go on YouTube and see her talk as well. Uh, it's a theoretical book, but you can understand a lot of what she says. So next week, we're talking about protests, boycotts, and general strikes. See you next week. Thanks a lot, Carl. Thank you.